0: Hey everyone, me again, Laszlo Montgomery. another CHP episode for you. Way back when I ran that 28 or 29-part Dynasty overview from Xia to Qing, I promised that once that was behind us, we would come back again and again to different periods in Chinese history and zoom in and take a closer look at many of the things we only glanced at in the overviews. And today we're doing just that. A lot of the background... To today's episode, will be culled from CHP episodes 27 and 28, covering the Tang, Part 3, and the Northern Song. I lumped the end of the Tang and the history of the Wu Dai Shi period into one single episode. That's the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period that was nestled in between the Tang and the Song. In fact, when I did episode 29, that sort of reviewed a little of episode 28. So with today's further review, this might possibly be the third time you're hearing about Lee ke and the Shatua Turks. So if you want to put your fingers in your ears to block out this rehash of that time, go right on ahead. You see, today we're looking at a guy who, if a certain eyewitness is telling the truth, would have been in the Guinness Book of World Records. it 's the tallest man in the world. Even beating out Robert Pershing Wadlow, who at 8 feet 11 inches or 2.72 meters, still holds the record, even though he passed away almost three quarters of a century ago. Robert Pershing Wadlow, the man who put Alton, Illinois, on the map, Also the <clears throat> birthplace of Miles Davis. Our topic today, Yeliu <inaudible> abaji he was nine chur tall. Nine churr. One chur was about a Chinese foot. This form of measurement had been around since the Shang dynasty and was the length of a forearm, the kings presumably. The length of one chur was about a third of a meter, or a little over 13 inches. So if this eyewitness, who we'll identify later in the game, was not blowing any bull, Aboji was just under 10 feet tall. Yao Ming would have come up to his chest well, common sense sort of tells us that some guy three meters tall in the 10th century... Who are you kidding? Well, history records that Abaji was quite an imposing presence and a very large man indeed. He could draw a 300-pound bow. In addition to that, like a certain person I won't name, it's said Abaji's birth came by immaculate conception, and there are all kinds of legends attributed to his birth and earliest years. He grew up in some rough times in China. He lived from 872 to 926, end of the 9th century, beginning of the 10th. The Byzantine Empire was riding high. Gunpowder has by now been invented and was used in battle for the first time in 919. Vikings were wandering around Normandy, Harold Fairhair in Norway, early Middle Ages in Europe. Islam is on the rise. The Holy Roman Empire. It's only 100 years old. In China, this is a very interesting time. The time period we're looking at today, when Ji lived, had quite a lot going on at one time. Let's quickly skim over the state of affairs that existed in China during the last dying breaths of the Tang Dynasty. The Tang, as great as a dynasty and period in Chinese history as it was, 618 to 907, It had a pretty long, drawn-out, and gruesome ending. The last two emperors were both murdered by the same guy, if you can believe that. And this guy, Zhu Wen, among other names he is known by, he went on to form a dynasty that was considered so evil and despicable that when Ouyang Xiu, featured in CHP episode 71, was writing the official history of this time during the Song He wanted to leave this horrible, violent, and hated dynasty out of the narrative. This was the later Liang Dynasty, first of the five dynasties that ran one right after the other in northern China. The later Liang and the last of the five, the later Zhou, were both Chinese dynasties. That is to say, their emperors were Han Chinese. The middle three were alien dynasties, alien in that they were Shatua Turks, the third one in that group, called the later Jin, were pawns of the Kitans to the north. Our focus today, the Kitans, I checked a few sources, and this was the most common pronunciation from all online dictionaries I checked. Dan Carlin uh, pronounced it Chitan in his superb Wrath of the Khan series on hardcore history. In Mandarin, they were known as the Chitan people. We're going to look at them in this episode, along with their most famous son, the great warrior, leader, and Liao Dynasty founder, Lu Ji. In past episodes, I guess out of sheer ignorance, I've always sort of lumped all the people who lived north of the Great Wall into one generic, oversimplified, easy-to-manage term, Steppe people, people of the steppes, northern barbarians or... Something along those lines. Almost from the time of the Han Dynasty all the way into the Qing, these people from the north leaned on China and harassed the nation to no end. China in the late 9th and early 10th centuries were surrounded by these guys. During the Han, the Chinese faced the Xiongnu and the Xianbei tribes, followed by the Rouran and the Göktürks, and then the Uyghurs. Yes, the Uyghurs, they weren't always west in Xinjiang. Their once-mighty Kaganit ran for a hundred years before the Kyrgyz invaded and the Uyghurs scattered in the only direction available, to the west, towards Central Asia. The Uyghurs had dealt the Kyrgyz a mortal blow in 758, but obviously not mortal enough because the Kyrgyz came back and were primarily responsible for the final death punch to the Uyghurs, kicking them out of the Mongolian plateau for good in 842. The Uyghurs were Turks, not Mongols. When they left, that was it as far as any further Turkic influence in the area we know as Mongolia. The Uyghurs ended up in Xinjiang, leaving the hard life of the steppe behind and clustered themselves around many of the oases there. They became Manichaeus and adopted the Sogdian script. When the Uyghur empire fell, it created a very big power vacuum in the lands today of Mongolia and Inner Mongolia. The Khitans, geographically being adjacent to these vacated lands, quickly moved in, and in short order, they picked up the mantle of the most powerful nation in the region. They were located in an interesting part of China. Their lands were just east of the greater Kingan mountain range. In Mandarin, these are the Da Xing Anling that runs north to south for 1,200 kilometers along the northernmost part of Inner Mongolia. East and west of this mountain range is sort of where Manchuria ends and Mongolia begins. The Khitans were from the eastern side of the mountains, on the fringes of Manchuria. Today, this would be the eastern part of Inner Mongolia. They were acquainted with the Mongols and the people of the two nations often intermarried. There were, linguistically, on a simple level, three kinds of people who circled China to the north and west. They were either Turkic, Mongol, or Tangusic. The Turkic languages that were spoken between Turkey and Xinjiang were all linguistically similar but not intelligible to each other. The Mongols stretched from northern Afghanistan all the way to Manchuria. The Khitans were similar to the Mongols. they have been referred to as paramongolic, but the Khitan language had similarities to both Turkic and Mongol languages. The Tangusic people were mostly in the eastern part of Siberia, but the largest speakers in this linguistic group were the Manchus and their predecessors, the Jurchens. These all comprised the Altaic language group, Mongol, Turkic, and Tungusic. They were quite different, but not so different that one couldn't easily learn the other's language. That was an important thing that helped to bind all these Inner asian people of the steppes together. By the way, the Altaic language group, besides the three I mentioned, also included Korean and Japanese, and Chinese came from the Sino-Tibetan linguistic branch the Khitans were the first of the three invaders to blow their way into China and call part of the Middle Kingdom their own. They were ultimately defeated by the Jurchens, who later went on to form the Jing Dynasty in 1125. This Jurchen Dynasty later would meet its grisly end at the hands of the Mongols, who would go on to form the Yuan Dynasty in China. Then the Jurchens would make a comeback in the 17th century, conquering China once again, but this time rebranded as the uh, Manchus. That was the Qing Dynasty, of course. But it was the Khitans who were the first of these invading northern people from the steppes. And before there was Genghis Khan, there was Abaoji. Of course, Abaoji's imperial achievements were on a much smaller scale than Genghis Khan, but he was the first great inner Asian conqueror who was able to hit it big with his territory grabs in northernmost China. Why they were called the Khitans, that secret hasn't been revealed yet. When you peruse the official list of 56 ethnic races in China, you'll see Mongols and Manchus and Uyghurs, of course, but no Khitan. They sort of got melted in the pot, and just about the closest thing left to the Khitans today would be the 130,000 or so Daur people, the Dawo Zu, who lived in the rugged northernmost portion of Inner Mongolia. Kitan was singular, and Kitat was plural. They were also called the Kitai. This is how the Yuan Dynasty Mongols referred to them. When the Russians started to wander southwards, they encountered these Kitans and referred to them as Kitai. This was the Persian and West Turkish word for China. Perhaps the Russians thought the Khitan they encountered were Chinese and that this was part of China. Kitai became the word "cathay" that we're familiar with today, and of course it's the word for China in Russian. The Khitans first came onto the scene, that is to say, got a mention in the historical record, in the fourth century. It's written that they were among the many who paid tribute to the northern way, the Northern Way, you may recall, 386, 535. Uh, they were Xianbei people, Mongols. The Khitans are descended from these Xianbei tribes. In fact, all the way up to the 10th century, the Khitans were either paying tribute to the Chinese, the Uyghurs, Mongols, or to other Turkic peoples. Absolutely nothing in the form of written records has made it to our times, directly from the Khitans themselves. That means they had to rely on you-know-who to write their history for them. And as far as prior to the 7th century, there's almost nothing at all about the Khitans and where they fit into everything. From the 4th to the 7th centuries, the Khitans lived a nice pastoral nomadic lifestyle out on the steppes between Manchuria and Mongolia. The basic building blocks of life on the steps were were the individual tribes that were made up of families, and the name of the game for any potential conqueror was to consolidate as many tribes or groups as possible under your confederation. Theirs was a rough world. A boy was considered a full-grown adult man by the time he was 15. The environment was a harsh one. I mean, let's face it, if the lands were suitable for agriculture, the Chinese would have long taken them over. But these lands of the Khitans, the Mongols, Uyghurs, Kyrgyz, it was all grasslands, deserts, an oasis here and there. And for this reason, the Han Chinese had always said, you know, to hell with that. I like it down here where the pastures are greener and more conducive to agriculture. Steppe was a Russian word for a grassland plain or savanna, a land without trees. Dry as can be, but not quite dry enough to be called a desert, but certainly dry enough where no forests could ever hope to grow. The Great Steppe, also known as the Eurasian Steppe, runs from Central Europe and the East all the way to Siberia. By the 7th and 8th centuries, there had evolved eight semi-independent groups amongst the Khitans. They all joined under a single umbrella called the Daha Confederacy. At this early stage, the Confederacy was under the thumb of the Tang Dynasty, and an elected council would speak for all eight groups. In the 8th century, one of the groups that rose to prominence followed Chinese fashion and took a surname, Yao Yaolian, and then went on to form what was known as the Yaoning Confederacy. Kitans didn't have surnames, but this clan had taken the surname Yao Yaolian. They were the only ones, at least for now. They were simply one of the eight tribes of Khitans who, by the early 8th century, were the most powerful of clans. You see, in that society, it didn't rise to prominence in any other way except through leadership. And this leadership would usually be manifested in people who were the biggest, baddest, most aggressive, and, you know, knew how to handle themselves well in the thick of battle. Every 3 years when all the clans from the Kitan nation got together, it was always someone from the Yaolian clan who was elected as their Khan. So this Yaoning confederacy and Kitan lands lasted from 730 to 907. 730, if you vaguely recall, was somewhere in the middle of the reign of the Shenzong Emperor. His regnal period along with that of the second Tang Emperor Taizong are considered the twin peaks of the Tang Dynasty. Tang Dynasty rulers had been dealing with these people to the north and west, Mongols, Khitans, Turks, Tanguts, in the same five tried-and-true ways that all preceding Chinese dynasties did. They strengthened their fortifications to the north, they used marriage diplomacy, which is the Heqin system, They threw titles and honor on these chieftains. They sent trade and tribute missions. And lastly, to keep the barbarians at the gate, they would use political and diplomatic ways to play various tribes and nations off against each other. These were the five balls they always had to juggle when it came to these non-Han people, always eyeballing China from the edges of their domains. Let's uh, review an example of how, because of the weakness of the Tang in its uh, last decades, these inner Asian people got sucked into Tang politics. Do you remember the Huang Chao Rebellion? This Huang Chao Qiyi pretty much did it for the Tang Dynasty. Li Ke Yong, a Shatok Turk, was called in to assist the Tang in their military hour of need. This is how it usually happened. The Tang imperial armies couldn't put down these rebellions on their own. They often needed to turn to these non Han people to the north and west to supplement their efforts. Even at the best of times for the Tang dynasty, they were surrounded. Uyghurs in western Gansu, Tibetans in Qinghai, Tanguts in Shanxi and southern Gansu, Shatua Turks in northern Shanxi, Khitans in northernmost Hebei, and Koreans in the Bohai area of Manchuria. There never was a shortage of sharks swimming around in China's perfect little world. The entirety of Inner Asia started just east of the Pamirs, where Afghanistan, China, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, and Tajikistan all sort of come together. From there, it ran eastward and northeast, passing through Tibet and Mongolia, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. The innermost core of inner Asia was Tibet, Xinjiang, outer and inner Mongolia, and Manchuria. This wasn't a land meant for a rich and relaxing sedentary life, the whole population of Inner Asia at the outset of the 10th century when Abouji walked the earth was only about 5 million versus China's population at the time of about 80 million. And back then, China's population made up 30% of the estimated total world population. Inner Asia's 5 million were all fractured and divided up into a myriad of tribes and nations. Those eighty million in China were mostly all there were perhaps only 750,000 Kitans roaming around their vast 10th century empire. To their Khitan way of looking at things, settling down to live a quiet life on the farm was considered most distasteful and degrading. They considered their active, sometimes violent, nomadic lifestyle to be the only way to live. And over the centuries, the Khitans learned, because of their easy proximity to China, that whatever they wanted that couldn't be had in their lands could easily be had from these Chinese farmers. And they would just ride in, trade for it, or take it, and then ride out. They knew the Chinese were terrified of them. The Khitans really had learned a lot living in the shadow of the Uyghurs when, you know, they had their empire. They watched and learned how the Uyghurs exploited the Chinese bordering their lands. They forced the Chinese to pay tribute to keep the peace. There was legitimate two-way trade going on, but the Uyghurs were expert in how to extract the maximum in benefits from the Chinese, usually at little or no cost to themselves. And the Khitans saw that this wealth that the Uyghurs extracted from the Chinese formed the foundation of their power in Inner Asia. It became a well-known fact that one of the quickest roads to riches was in shaking down the Middle Kingdom. But never would the Khitans consider settling amongst them. To settle down anywhere in close proximity to China would be akin to surrendering your Khitan culture and nomadic way of life forever. The perfumes, pleasures, and culture wafting out of China always drew these nomads in. And when they got too close and stayed too long, the memories of where they had come from and their traditions would slowly be extinguished. In this thinking, the Khitans of the steppe were in lockstep with their Manchu, Mongol, and Uyghur cousins. If you got too close to that enticing black hole, you would inevitably get sucked in. It was easier for the Koreans and Uyghurs to avoid being assimilated because they were geographically far away. But the Khitans, they were right on the border of North China where all the action was taking place. If they let their guard down, that would spell the end of their proud culture. Now, getting back to the Yaolian clan who ran things in the world of the Khitans, by the late 9th century, they had started to feel a little pressure from the competing Yila clan another of the eight tribes of Khitans. In their society, no one minced words or cloaked their intentions in innuendo, like a certain culture to the south, I won't name. When you were making a power grab in Khitan society, you did the equivalent of beating your shield with your sword. Aboji was the son of one of the chieftains of the Yila tribe. In 901, Aboji took over this role from his father, and in 903, he was made Yuyueh, of all Kitan fighting forces. This essentially made him the most powerful person in the Kitan realm, even though technically he was under the great Khan of the Yao Lian clan. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com specialoffer. All lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. spent the first years of the 10th century getting all his ducks in a row. The Tang dynasty, though on life support, wasn't dead yet. In 905, Aboji met with Li Ke Yong, the Shatuo Turk with the honorary Li surname. They met in Li's stronghold of Datong in Shanxi and established a special relationship, and as the story goes, they swore to be brothers. Aside from the Honorary surname, Li Yong had also been given the title of Prince of Jin, Jin being the ancient state that is today mostly Shanxi province. All the license plates for cars registered in Shanxi province will all have that ancient character Jin stamped on it. So Li Yong now has a nice powerful buddy to the north in Abaoji, and now Abaoji has a friend in Li Ke who could serve as his entree into China politics. You know, with the Tang Dynasty dying in slow motion like it was, you know, like a Sam Peckinpah movie, it gave Abaoji plenty of time to plan. 907 was the banner year. That's when the fireworks began. The Tang Dynasty ended. The man who murdered the last emperor went on to found the first of the five dynasties in the north, called the later Liang. And up in the lands of the Qitan, Aboji formally took over the leadership as their great Khan. And for the first time in Chinese history, rather than have to look over their shoulder to the northwest, now the Chinese were feeling the pressure to the northeast. And the loyal Shatuo Turks, who had tied themselves to the Tang, continued to serve as warlords in the north to keep an eye on anyone who had designs on the north of China. The lure of China, especially at such a vulnerable time as 907, was was simply too great for Abaoji. During this transitional period, with the Tang now deceased, things were really ripe for the taking he had slowly battled his way to the top of the food chain in the Khitan world. That wasn't enough for Abaoji. He had his sights on China, and for this line of thinking, he would have to face stiff and intense opposition from not only the Khitan nobles and his family, but from his formidable wife as well. Abaoji's new revolutionary idea was to create a kind of dual administration system Sort of, but not really like the equal liang jir system that exists now with you know China and Hong Kong to initially deal with later liang China. Abaoji set up a kind of foreign administration system within Khitan society that was tasked to deal specifically with Chinese affairs. This was merely the first step to a dual empire that he was intent on founding. Abaoji was building a Khitan empire that had him wearing two hats. He was both kagan of the Khitans in their northern lands, as well as emperor of China and the Chinese lands to the south that he occupied. So this empire was nomadic Khitan in the north and sedentary Chinese in the south. It was managed by a Khitan elite that spoke Chinese and were familiar with both cultures. The new dual government was divided up into a northern chancellery that managed the Khitan clan based society. It was a military state, always headed by someone from the Xiao clan, that not only included the Khitans, but other non Khitan tribes who were based west of Khitan lands. In the south, there was a Chinese style civil government run using the tried and true Chinese ways. This was always headed from someone of the ruling Yelü clan. The main purpose for this government was to carry out the administration of tax collection from all non-Kitan subjects in the south. The dual administration system functioned quite nicely for about 200 years. However, the conservative Kitan nobility in the north was dead set against this dual administration system and fought it from day one. Abuji wouldn't be swayed, despite all the rebellions and uprisings against him. He knew the key to success rested in building up the central state and the authority that came with it. The greater he built his majesty, the greater would be his power and authority in both the Khitan lands to the north and China in the south. And furthermore, Aboji turned his back on tribal ways when he announced that the emperorship that he held would henceforth become hereditary and would be passed on to his eldest son. No longer would tribal ways be accepted where, you know, whoever was strong enough to seize leadership just went and did so. This, like everything else, didn't go over too well in the Khitan world. From 907 till his death, Abuji fought off all detractors, including his own brothers, who rose up against him in 911. His family, he always let them off the hook, but anyone else was severely dealt with. He demanded that his ideas be given a chance, and that this was what was best for the Khitan people. The Khitan nobles saw this whole change to a hereditary succession as a diminishment of their overall political power. The long-standing system was that... These Khitan nobles would choose their supreme leader every three years in a kind of grand council. And if the leadership became hereditary monarchy, one of their most critical roles and the source of their power, choosing the new Khagan, would become superfluous. In 916, Aboji used some Chinese court ritual to elevate himself even higher and declared himself emperor of the Khitan. He named a Chinese-style dynasty called the Liao using the Chinese system and named his eldest son, Prince Bei, as his heir. He had stacked the deck so that all future emperors, as I said, would come from his Yila clan, who later were to adopt the surname Yalu, and all consorts would be chosen from the, as I said, the Xiao clan. Aboji's wife came from the Xiao clan. Marrying Chinese was right out and not permitted. The royal family was to be kept pure and had to be comprised only of these two clans. Xiao was the surname that later on was granted to this clan who, you know, provided all the concerts for all the remaining Khitan emperors. He set up five capitals to run his empire. The central government was located in the supreme capital, or Shangjing, and was located in the eastern part of Inner Mongolia. The eastern capital was located in Liaoyang in Liaoning province. There was also a western capital at Datong in Shanxi, as well as a central capital and a southern capital. This southern Liao capital was located in what is present-day Beijing. Up till then, Beijing was merely some border garrison town. Now, in the 10th century, for the first time, China's most famous city was becoming a place of importance. The central government located in Shangjing, was divided up into six ministries. These were personnel, revenue, rights, war, justice, and works. Aboji introduced a chinese style civil administration based on the Tang model in nine eighteen The Kitan nobility were moved into a walled city with an adjacent Chinese-walled city called Han Hancheng Han Cheng just means Chinese city. Aboji took all the rejection and criticism in stride. He knew what he was doing. There was wealth aplenty down in China, and he wanted to transfer some of that to his Kitan nation in the north. And in order to do that, he had to set up this southern chancellery that would manage the whole China enterprise for the Khitans. In toto, there were about two and a half million Chinese who were directly controlled by the Khitan Liao. Abouji believed that if they had to use this entire Chinese bureaucracy to pull it off, then so be it. Some of the Kitan noble elites were, were comfortable and at home in both Kitan and Chinese cultures. But the overwhelming majority wanted to keep their traditions and found nothing good about this China adventure. Abuji believed that for the Khitans, it was better to go in and conquer than manage this potential wealth that China could yield. The old way had always been to carry out these raids into northern China, but this was sometimes an iffy proposition. You never knew what you were going to get. They had to go seize a part of north China, control it, and administer it. Then, like they used to do in modern times in Sichuan with the harvesting of bile from the Asiatic black bear, the Khitans would methodically siphon off all the taxes and wealth they could from the Chinese part of their empire. History doesn't record if Aboggi embraced Chinese culture at all. He was probably fluent in Chinese and was familiar with their customs. Whether this was due to appreciation or for the sake of expediency, hard to say. By 920... Aboji found it necessary for the Kitans to have their own script in order to manage their own bureaucracy. Aboji knew this was important to their management of the empire. It was important to come up with a script of their own and not go the way of the Koreans who had just fully adopted Chinese characters as their written script. Up to this point, there was no Khitan script. What first came about was known as the large script, no Rosetta Stone yet has been found that has allowed experts to decipher this script. The cool thing about the Qitan script is that they used Chinese characters, but did not take the meanings that went along with the characters. And they didn't just adopt the characters. They did things with them that were sort of strange and removed some strokes or combined characters into these hybrids that were you know, completely unintelligible to Chinese Then in 925, one of Aboji's brothers came up with the Kitan small script that was more Uyghur influenced, but still used these modified Chinese characters. As far as the Chinese lands governed by the Southern Chancellery, Chinese was used to handle day-to-day administration. However, all government pronouncements or monuments of any kind used the Kitan script as the official version. This moment in time is just prior to the introduction of Islam in this part of the world. The 10th century was still a time of Buddhism in Central and Inner Asia. The Khitans, like most Central Asians, had become Buddhists. Since the Buddhist texts were all in Chinese, mastery of that language was critical to the Khitan nobility. In their understanding of the Chinese language, lay the key to unlocking the secrets of Chinese learning and wisdom not to mention everything there was about Buddhism. In 922-923, Aboji led his Khitan troops deeper into Hebei, this put him in direct conflict with their longtime ally, the Shatuo Turks. Hebei is the next-door neighbor to the east of Shanxi, Li Keyong's stronghold. In 923, the later Liang dynasty was overthrown, and Li Keyong's son, Li Chunxi set up the second of the five dynasties, the later Tang. This dynasty wasn't destined to last very long, about 13 years only. Li Xu had taken over control of the Chateau Turks from his father after Li Keyong passed in 908. Afterwards, Aboji set his sights to the east, to the Korean state of Bohai. The Koreans called it Belhae. This would be around where part of Liaoning, Jilin, and North Korea are, with a little bit of Russia thrown in. They bordered the Khitans to the east, so they were fair game for invasion. You're no doubt familiar with the Bohai Sea. This is the gulf created by the two peninsulas of Liaodong and Shandong that jut out into the Yellow Sea. If you remember from the CHP episodes on the Tang Dynasty, the Chinese were sparring with the Japanese and Korea. There were three kingdoms contending for supremacy in Korea, Koguryo, Pekche, and Sila. The Bohai kingdom was a successor to this time in Korean history. They were defeated by Aboji in 926. A puppet kingdom was set up in this conquered Bohai region that became known as the Dongdan kingdom. Prince Bae, Aboji's designated heir was made the Prince of Dongdan. Aboji had successfully pushed out the borders of the Khitan Empire all the way to the Yalu and Usuri rivers to the east and the Mongolian plateau to the west. He had expanded the breadth of his empire and instituted all kinds of reforms that he believed helped the Khitans. He had brought a small but significant portion of China under Kitan control. He was looking good by the year 926, but, as it sometimes happens, right at the pinnacle of his success, he up and died from typhoid fever, and then his perfectly laid plans regarding the succession got ugly. I mentioned at the outset that it said, according to a certain eyewitness account, that Abaji was nine chur tall. This came from the writing of a Chinese later Tang Dynasty palace attendant and envoy named Yao Kun. When Abaji was getting too close for comfort to the later Tang lands, the emperor dispatched an envoy to go talk to him to see what was up with that. Yao Kun visited Abaji just as he was finishing off the Bohai Kingdom. Yao Kun's purpose in meeting with Abaji was to inform him that Li Cunxu, the son of his sworn brother, Li Ko and heir as emperor to the later Tang, had died suddenly. Actually, he was killed by one of his own officers. Yao Kun had been sent by the new emperor, Li Siyuan. Relations between the later Tang and the Kitans had soured considerably once Li Ke Yong died. By 936, the short-lived dynasty will fall to the forces of Shi Jing Tang, who I mentioned also in that previous episode, CHP 28, Shur was a pawn of the Khitans and would go on to set up the third of the five dynasties in the north, this one being the later Jin. So let's get back to the unexpected death of Abaji in 926. This was quite sudden. He was only 54 years old when he met his end. Abaji had gone to great lengths to ensure a smooth succession but what ended up happening instead was a big old-fashioned succession crisis thanks to Abaji's wife, the Empress Dowager Ying Tian. In a word, she was formidable. No slouch whatsoever, and she accompanied Abaji wherever he went, even into battle. She accompanied her husband's body back to the capital to Shangjing and handled all the details of the funeral. But there was one complication. According to the Kitan way of doing things, when the Khan, or Emperor, passed, the wife went with him. You know, one of those kinds of deals. The Empress Dowager, Ying Tian, she had other ideas. She had felt that as far as everything Aboji had been able to conquer or accomplish, she had a 50% shareholding in the enterprise. So she wasn't going to go quietly with her deceased husband into the afterlife. But this broke with precedent, and she had to argue with the palace officials, who you know, were only doing their job by pointing out that you know, she had to be sacrificed and buried in the tomb with her deceased husband, according to Khitan custom. Well, she negotiated on this point and in the end offered for her arm to be cut off and placed in the tomb to you know, represent her. Well, you know, that was considered a little bit extreme, so these palace officials said, well, you know, just cut off one of your hands and, you know, that ought to do it. And so this is what happened. She, you know, allowed them to cut off her hand, place it in the tomb, and when it was all over, she was now in charge. This empress did quite a lot to change many things for Khitan women in that society. This precedent she started became the new custom, and afterwards no longer did Khitan wives have to end their lives when their husbands died. Aboji had made such carefully laid plans to allow his oldest son, Prince Bei, you know, the prince of Dongdan, to follow him on the throne. He had insisted on adopting a Chinese-style hereditary monarchy. But that was where the rub was. You see, the Empress Dowager Ying Tian, she found the Chinese ways distasteful and was very hardcore conservative when it came to preserving, you know, traditional Kitan values. She felt that Prince Bei was slightly contaminated because of his years spent amongst the Chinese and for how he had embraced the culture so unreservedly, even bringing Confucianism into the world of the Kitans. Many of the Kitan nobles went along with her on this, so she didn't want Prince Bei taking over. Instead, she wanted her second son, De Guang, become the new emperor and Khan. At 24 years old, this son, aside from being his mother's clear favorite, had all the right stuff as far as what mattered in Khitan society. Upon Abadji's death, she had seized all executive and military powers. She was strong-willed and pugnacious, and no one wanted to mess with her. Yao Kun, the later Tang envoy had mentioned her, and that she was present with her husband when he defeated the Bohai kingdom. So despite Aboji spending 20 years trying to create this new system, Empress Dowager Ying Tian threw it out the window, and it will take 43 years before, in the year 969, the ears of Prince Bei will take over the throne. So even though Aboji was very clear in his instructions about the succession, and even though he had gone as far as to make all his Khitan generals and nobles swear loyalty to Prince Bei, Empress Dowager Ying Tian demanded a change of plans. She forced Prince Bei to abdicate, and this eldest son, not wanting to go up against someone as you know strong-willed as his mother, agreed and stepped aside for his brother to take over he asked to remain as the Prince of Dongdan, and this they allowed him. All was quiet for a while, but the Empress was keeping an eye on the Prince of Dongdan, and he always seemed to lie under a cloud of suspicion. Four years later, in 930, with an invitation from the Emperor Li Siyuan, this Sinified Kitan Royal made a getaway and headed to the lands of the later Tang and lived out the rest of his life amongst the Chinese there. By the way, it was in the 930s, uh, after Abuji had passed, that his clan broke ranks with Kitan tradition and took on the surname of Yalu. So posthumously, Abuji is known as Yelü Abuji. Now, just because Prince Bei, or the Prince of Dongdan, had sought a safer haven amongst the Chinese didn't mean he had turned his back on his Kitan people. After several years living amongst the Chinese and being so close to the later Tang court, he figured out this dynasty was weak and rotten and could easily be overthrown. So he sent secret reports to his Khitan contacts in the north and told them they wanted to attack. This dynasty could be toppled easily. And in 936, the later Tang dynasty was indeed toppled by the Khitans they had come to the aid of their man, Shi Jing Tang, who had revolted against the later Tang. Thereupon, they installed their own puppet on the throne, and thus began the later Jin dynasty, the third of the five dynasties in the north. And also, as I mentioned in the previous episode, for their troubles, the puppet later Jin emperor ceded to the Khitans, the 16 prefectures, that stretched like a crescent from Datong Tong in northern Shanxi to Beijing in the south. This put the Khitans right into the heartland of northern China. And for his troubles, Prince Bei got whacked in 936 after it was learned that he was the one who had facilitated the Khitan invasion of the later Tang capital. Remember, while all of this is going down, there are ten kingdoms in central and southern China. This part of China, you know, lacked the violence and drama found in the five dynasties in the north. Since about the time that all the troubles began for the Tang Dynasty, all these northern aristocratic elites saw their perfect world in Chang'an and later Luoyang coming to an end. And to the south, many of them migrated. This was a productive time for Chinese literature, and that printing, or more specifically block printing, by this time in the 10th century had reached a rather advanced stage, and this really allowed the book printing business to explode. All these changes that happened during this short Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period laid the groundwork for the Song dynasty and the new landscape in China that saw the emergence of these new men, non-aristocratic literati, who rose through the ranks and found themselves in the government, not due to their family lineage, but to their achievements only. As for Ye Liu Abaji, he is credited with founding this Liao dynasty. However, it wasn't until the year 947, 21 years after his death, that the dynastic name Liao or Great Liao was officially adopted. Eight emperors would follow Abaoji in the Liao dynasty. Abaoji had been posthumously named Emperor Liao Taizu, and his second son, De Guang, would be known as the Emperor Taizong. Chinese records consider the start of the Liao dynasty to be 907, so you'll see the Liao as having lasted from 907 to 1125 a total of 218 years. But again, it wasn't officially proclaimed until 947. Today, I only wanted to focus on Abaji and the Kitans of the 9th and 10th centuries as we're already into stoppage time. We're going to insert the bookmark here and move on to something else next episode rather than, you know, continue on with what happened with the Kitan Liao Dynasty, up until they were done in by the Jurchens of Manchuria. This is Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from bright and sunny Claremont, California. It wasn't so bright and sunny this week, but it sure is looking good today. I hope you'll find time out of your busy schedules to join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.